First, I want to thank everybody for attending the Mic Drop Market Spaces today. Just as a reminder, before we begin, this material is presented solely for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be construed as a recommendation, solicitation, or an offer to buy or sell, long or short, any securities, commodities, or any related financial instruments. Please contact a licensed professional before making any investment or trading decisions. And with that, we'll introduce our guest. We have Alex Philstein. I hope I said that right. Steiner scene. He's a senior technical expert in Canadian heavy oil production, specializing in stream-assisted gravity drainage technology and optimizations. In 2018, he received the Oil Week Magazine Rising Star Award, and in 2019, the Technical Achievement Alumni Award from the University of Calgary. In the past, he served as a board observer for General Fusion, Saltworks, and Hi-Fi Engineering. He advanced 16 patents being employed by majors with a focus on environmental improvements. He enjoys mentoring PhD students and talking about his newly published book, Apollo Autism, which helps families achieve a happier tomorrow. Next, we have Thomas George, who I just saw got, yay, slept here. He began his career in 2002 at TD Asset Management. He's held various roles, including head of resource investments and portfolio manager at of the TD Resource Fund, the TD Energy Fund, the TD Precious Metals Fund. He is currently co-manager of the Grizzle Growth ETF. And last but not least, we have Deerpoint Macro. Deerpoint has a background in working for global asset management firms and mutual funds, covering a wide range of funds from EM, oil and gas, bonds to equities and growth. And he's recently made the transition to credit. And with that, we'll go ahead and get started. Thank you guys for being here today. Um, we'll start with Alex. Um, first, let's start with the U.S. SPR drain. There seems to be kind of two schools of thought on this, kind of apropos since we just had a solicitation for another token $3 million this morning. But um, there seems to be two schools of thought on this. One that says the U.S. doesn't need the SPR anymore because we have shale reserves. And the other, like me, think that not having a reserve on hand is kind of a national security issue. So what are your thoughts about this? And, you know, what are your thoughts about the refill? Yeah, thank you, Tracy. And thanks for everyone. And thanks for having me today. Yeah, SPR is uh, is an intriguing topic, right? And I think it's really important to think about uh, the SPR in the context of, um, you know, strategic kind of inventories, just like you had mentioned, but also kind of what, what's going on with U.S. production and uh, when does the music stop kind of in a way, right? Uh, where the tier one kind of inventories will be declining here, uh, which I also have much to share about. But the SPR, I think if, if we think about the SPR, we have to firstly admit that um, United States uh, Biden government, you know, maybe it's not the most popular view, but did an incredible job basically price controlling, uh, utilizing the SPR. The SPR right now is back to 1983 levels. If you think about it, that's pretty like it's a like 40 year low and uh, roughly a 353 million barrels, which is uh, roughly a tough. At peak, it was 70, 725 million barrels. And so uh, just like there was kind of this narrative that you could get uh, a lot of supply from the SPR. Uh, you, you know, is it going to be refilled now? And my idea is that, you know, as the tier one, tier two kind of inventories, the inventory quality and degradation 
in the in the Permian region, which is essentially a combination of the Midland um, uh, Formation kind of and the uh, and the Delaware Formation, which is basically where the oil production increases are. As those acreages kind of decline over time, it becomes more uh, and more important on refilling the SPR and kind of securing uh, those barrels. I also think as the United States production is getting lighter here, and obviously you can see it in the form of uh, gasoline exports, where United States exporting more and more lighter ends uh, to the world, uh, there will be a strategic priority to refill the SPR, uh, especially with the heavier crudes. And that leads me to my next question, where, you know, and we've kind of talked about this before, it seems that, you know, U.S. shale wells are getting gassier and gassier, meaning increasing gas to oil ratios. So first, can you kind of explain what this means to people that might not be familiar with this term? And what does this mean for future production? And how is this impacting production numbers? Um, and when does this really start to matter? I know that was kind of a lot, but... Yeah, so that, that's a good good question, and I think it really speaks to kind of like uh, w- what is exactly oil and what what is natural gas. We we call natural gas because it's very easy to say, but reality is natural gas is methane, is the largest molecule in the hydrocarbon chain, uh, and slightly methane, right? C one and C two, and oil is really everything that kind of uh, what we know as natural gas. Condensates will be. Uh, the kind of hexanes and pentanes, um, which, which are the lighter ends, and I guess. And so what, what you end up seeing is that you have, if you think about the shale uh, revolution, if you fracture a formation uh, and you have a hydrocarbon where you have the methanes and you have the pentanes and, and all the octanes and all the kind of heavier ends, um, the, the easiest path to, to come through the crack will be the lighter ends, right? And as the kind of acreage is uh, degrading the quality of the geology, you will have higher gas to oil ratio, which is essentially higher natural gas to oleic phase ratios, which is basically higher portions of the methanes. Um, and so what, what we're kind of seeing is that we're seeing basically United States exporting more of the lighter end and becoming, becoming this really export hub, like an LNG hub, liquefied natural gas hub. And liquefied natural gas is essentially natural gas or methane in liquid form where it's stored in liquid form and you're able to transport it overseas to provide it to markets um, uh, overseas that are happy to take it. But but to your question about kind of the GORs and, and the way we think about this, if you think, let's say, about Eagle Ford and the Williston uh, regions, right, or, or the Bakken, uh, those regions essentially achieved the peak oil production back in 2015. And, but... But despite the production declining, you'd still see higher GORs in the form of that natural gas or methane production in those regions, regions is still remain an all-time high. And so one thing is guaranteed that over time, although the Permian may, you know, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When the Permian does speak, there is a kind of this guarantee based on historically looking at Williston and Eagle Ford that there will be sustained natural gas production from those basins, just like what we saw from Williston and Eagle Ford. Then what does this mean, you know, what does this mean, you know, if higher gore impacts, how, how do you think higher gore will 
impact exports, being that you can really only use these NGLs for, you know, in plastics production and petrochemical feedstocks. So does that eventually filter down to U.S. exports or is there enough demand for those products? Yeah, and that's an excellent question. And I think it's kind of a function of uh, global growth, right? And and what, what's the demand overseas for, for many of those products? Uh, one, one thing I could share with you is that if you look, let's say, about uh, jet fuel, right? So the molecule for jet fuel, if, if methane is C1 and let's say propane is C3, the molecule for something like jet fuel is C9 to C16. So those will be the heavier molecules. So United States essentially is pretty much flat, around 200 barrels per day um, export export. Uh, that does not increase. So that, that's clearly a very valuable mo molecule to the United States. If you look at distillates, let's say the diesels of the world, right? Uh, you're roughly at 1.1 million barrels per day, but you've been essentially flat on that export for the last 10 years. And if you look at gasoline, which is the lighter molecule, which is kind of the octanes, the C8s, where it's exactly where the lighter oil uh, production increase is taking place in the Midland Basin, um, that export is increasing over time. And so that's really a question about the demand, you know, in places like China, in the Asian Pacific, is there appetite for those products kind of over time as society grows? You know, there's a really interesting stat around um, U.S. population, which is like over 340 million, and the consumption in the United States, which is 20 million barrels a day, which basically yields about like 22 barrels per day annually per person. But in India, you have, and in China, you have 1.4 billion people. Um, and that stuff really translates to that population. In China, you consume about four uh, barrels per person annually, and in India, 1.3. And so if you think about like if each person, and I know it's not exact science, and it's just like all basically my fantasies, or kind of like guesstimating, but even if you had slight increase, let's say by one barrel a day, that really translates to 7 million uh, barrels per day increase in demand um, globally, right? And so you don't really have to have that one barrel increase. You can have like a fraction of that increasing. And uh, it's to your question is like, will there be a demand? And as the as the life quality kind of increases for people, as demand for energy increases, especially in those regions, uh, I assume you will see a demand for this product. So um, I think it's really important to also remember that there is this narrative that United States cannot stop producing oil and produces oil at all-time highs. Reality is, in my view, that the United States got, it took four years to get back to its previous highs pre-COVID, right? Um, and now, basically, as it's there, it could grow production, but it's basically like a tub that you fill with water, but there is like a hose that ex exports significantly more and more products over time to those regions where they don't have as much hydro hydrocarbon production, right? And so I think that's an interesting dynamic between supply demand and where kind of society is heading from here. One cannot just look at the supply only, it must also look at the demand and the historic increase in demand, which is roughly a million barrels per day increase on annual basis. Excellent, and I want definitely want to come back to this um, so I, I will definitely come back to you. We're going to head over to uh, Thomas. I want to talk a little bit about moving over to Canada a little bit. First, I just have a curious, first kind of a personal question. Um, 
What are your thoughts about these carbon repeal, uh, carbon tax repeal in uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan in kind of defiance of the federal government? Can you hear me, Thomas? Oh, hold on. Oh, oh shoot. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, yeah, good. Sorry, keep throwing me on mute. I'm having like little technical difficulties here. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and you know, listen, we got we got a super expert and razor uh, razor on the uh, on the stage with respect to Canada. So you know, I'll, my own personal perspective is is that. Uh, you know, we need in Canada, particularly, and you know, where you know what we, where we invest is very, uh, very, very global, U.S. specific. But, but it, with respect to Canada, as as a Canadian, uh, you know, there's no question uh, that you know we all of our you know where where we stand today is accumulation of of uh, of a lot of flaws, right? And and that's a combination of of. Uh, you know, th th it's just you. You need to incentivize production to get to market as quickly as possible, and and that both natural gas and and oil and um, yeah, and anything to stifle it, be it taxes, you know, be it be it red tape. Uh, you know, like we're 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 looking at a at a situation, particularly with respect to uh, LNG, right, where we could have been a leader. You know, like if if all of if we built pipes out, you know, in in you know in uh, oil as well, right. All of that, you're you're now looking at a situation where, listen, we have a chance to fix all that, and we, you know, uh, get you know, get it on the right track, and I and I hope we can, right, as a country, uh, I, I, you know, I think that's, uh, and so yeah, you know, provinces standing up, the federal government, if the federal government's not acting right, I think it makes a ton of sense. And so that was kind of my next question. Do you think it's you know your thoughts on LNG? Is it too little, too late, or can Canada get in the game meaningfully? Yeah. So, so yeah. That, with respect to that, absolutely right. And it's not too. I certainly wish uh, we we were we were in the game earlier, right? But uh, uh, there, there's no question. It's it's not uh, it's not too late, uh, without a doubt. We just need to move, right? And and that's that's. I think when you think broader picture about uh, resource extraction uh, at a at a global level for developed countries, the what's gonna what's gonna end up being the stifling point is you know how are you know if if you a incentivize it and b uh you know wrap it up in a lot of um or, or not wrap it up in a lot of uh uh red tape environmental and regulatory etc that is you know that's the, that's the cleanest path to market right and so i think right now we really have to look at, for canadians and canada as a country is do we want to be uh you know, do we want to be a hydrocarbon powerhouse that, that we, we are naturally endowed to be? Or, you know, are you going to, you know, are you going to live in this fantasy land of, uh, you know, you know be it hydrogen, whatever, right? You know, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever we're not uh, equipped to be leaders in uh, that. And I, I think, I think we're, we're definitely, we're definitely very out of all the, out of the uh, entire uh, commodity suite that we look at. We're probably the most bullish structurally long term on natural gas, without a question. It's uh, it's it's a great spot to be in, right? Like you know, I think there there can be a lot of bull bear arguments around oil, and uh, and I, we're still bullish oil. But I don't think anyone, any anyone realistically saying, oh yeah, in ten years we'll be using yet less natural gas. We'll be using more, right? And what you can quibble about is the price, and everyone's quibbling about the price. It's got a two handle on it, right? So obviously quibble about the price, but the reality on a volume basis. 
no one's quibbling, right? Oil, you know, you can get bull bear debates on, oh, okay, well, you know, how EV penetration, et cetera. And, it, all, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's counter arguments how valid or not, right? But with natural gas, there's no question. <laughs> like, we should be off coal as, as a commodity, and, and the next in line is natural gas. Uh, absolutely. Now I want to kind of let's move over to nuclear and uranium, um, since we are talking about energy in general today. Um, so we've had uranium prices obviously had a spectacular year in 23. Um, so does this continue? Um, are we just getting started? And kind of what is your outlook on this uh, sector with regards to North America specifically? Yeah, and so, so you know, we we spent some a fair amount of time looking at uh, looking at the underlying equities, like the way the way investors can play it, right? And obviously, there's uh, you know, there's the uranium trusts, but uh, which uh, had a had a stellar year, uranium uh, best performing uh, best performing commodity, right? From our perspective, that that train is just if you pull up that chart, it, it, it's it's arguably one of the best you know <laughs> one of the best stories in commodities, right? Like I don't think anyone's at, you know, put it another way. I don't think anyone's going to, uh, you know, stand out there and be short uranium, right? And what people now the nuance is people are like, well, you know, own the own the um, uh, you know own the commodity, but don't own the shit codes. I'm like, in what world? In what place do you call for mooning um, of the commodity, which is kind of like you know? So if I could take it a step back, and I'll try to post some of these graphs into the nets, but I'll, I'll send them to you, Tracy. Either way, like, but you know, I was going to post them in, but. Uranium has an interesting feature, right? And, and it's not dissimilar to many commodities, right? What ends up happening is when uh, you, when prices go up, they don't just go up in a nice stepwise linear function. They they may at some point, right? It'll it'll be uh, you know it'll it'll be uh, some linear linear slope upwards. But then at some point you hit a squeeze point, right? And anytime in history for uranium, it's always squeezed, right? And that that's what everyone's playing for here. Like it's it's squeeze. So if you're bullish uranium, by definition, you're not dumb. You know this that that okay, I've got my thesis here and I know how this all ends. It's kind of a squeeze up. And by definition, when you squeeze up, you always, you know, there's a squeeze down at some point. But bottom line is that's what we're playing for here. And we haven't hit that uh, you know, that parabolic lift yet, right? So so everyone's like, okay, listen, own this own own the uranium um and you know and, and then there's this you know there's this negative uh construct and i won't call him out but there's uh, you know, a guy out here who doesn't have his name out here again trace i will say this factually right you know there's a lot of there's a lot of participants in the market generally good bad twitter's the best place that could ever exist right but a lot of people who just you know who who come out with huge bear theses etc like yo listen just tell tell us your name etc tell, tell us everything about you but irrespective I, what what is interesting is that you know they're they're trying to say okay listen you own the uranium commodity and you're short the shit coast right i'm like in what world in what world have you ever seen uh, the the underlying if a commodity spikes and spikes hard where small caps do nothing and in fact go down you actually are genuinely short these small caps and to me that that to me is an illogical view right and and uh, so from our perspective if you look at history um, in in the way these work is uranium squeezes boom what leads first in the pre squeeze phase is chemical right like the you know the the big shiny object. Big managers like, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess around here. I'm just gonna put it in the name everybody knows, and that ends up doing the best early on in the bull cycle. And surprise, surprise, last year, Cameco was the best, one of the best performing stocks, if not the best, uh, just, uh, just behind uranium. Uh, 
spot uranium. And then so we're, we're of the view that the catch-up trade is so tremendous here, uh, if you look at history, that, that once, you hit the, once you hit the parabolic squeeze in the commodity, the small and mid caps, particularly the small caps, then squeeze doubly as hard uh, as the large caps. And then when you kind of count, count the, whole, the whole period, and I'll pull up the graph, right, where you, you ultimately are better off owning the small caps uh, in, in, through the whole cycle. But in the early part, it, there's pain. So let me give you just high-level numbers, right? So high-level numbers, large caps did 80% uh, uh, in 2023. They were up 80, 80%. Small caps, the small cap bucket was up 20%. Uh, and if you went underlying and looked at all those stocks in the small caps, 50% 50, 50 of those stocks were negative and some negative very badly. So <laughs> long way of saying, I just think we're in a really sweet spot for, for small mid cap uranium. Well, yeah, because now, you know, you have a lot of those smaller guys, right, that really couldn't uh, perform well with lower uranium prices can finally kind of get their projects off the ground exactly and so if there are there are any particular projects that you want to share with us by any chance um <laughs> yeah, yeah. that well, you're looking at in in well, north america yeah sure well, you, you know so, so like so we're so we've we put I'll, I'll i'll throw the link to the Substack as well so we've highlighted so we're, we're about to ex expand uh our analysis as well but we did our first analysis we identified 10 names um, that uh, that you know basically felt that you know we, we have have a have a have a real shot here. Like you know they're well positioned. Like again, what what causes the squeeze? Like what causes what causes um, you know a small cap to get bid? And I'll, let me just talk through the logic, and then I, you know I can kind of you know give you the backdrop. But we're going to expand that study in the coming weeks and kind of um, expand it to a larger swath of companies. But I but I think broadly speaking, three things you want, right? So. A, you want, you want market cap, right? So, you, you know, you, you, this is, I think the juice has been, most of the uh, most of the big juice has been taken out of chemical on a relative basis. I'm not saying don't own chemical, but I'm saying if you are bullish uranium, you probably want to be owning small cap names relative to chemical, right? And so that, that's, that's one take. Then the second take is, well, what kind of, what small caps work, right? And if you... Go further in, and I'll post. I'll post the. I'll post the graph in the nest. Right when we did our work further, what we found it was interesting is that there was this market cap uh, percentile bucket from the twenty fifth percentile to the seventy fifth percentile. So because the skew of market cap in uranium is so much towards like uber large, like you know, Cameco, that twenty fifth to seventy fifth percentile market cap, like you know, district is actually small cap still. But what's interesting there is that that's actually that's a swath of companies that actually have resources. Like so, you know, they you know they have uh, you know they have verified resources, and so the way it works is that basically you have commodity portfolio managers, portfolio managers in general, looking for the catch up trade as well. But they're they're uh, you know they wanna they wanna be buying into companies uh, that just you know that actually have you know drilled it out to find the resource. Uh, and have the potential to to be first to market or next to first to market, and that's important to us. So we think that you know, broadly speaking, um, we like the companies that have a are small cap, lagged, have resources, and uh, you know, on on valuation metrics, uh, have value. And so, so you know, we're, we're we've we've identified ten names. There's there's probably a few like so. There's I think there's probably another dozen that are that are very valid contenders out there. 
uh, but I'll, I'll be I'll be putting out the put we'll be putting out the full analysis so we can we can touch back again when, when we put it all all out again. But uh, but but we're we're gonna we're gonna add another swath of uh, of market cap. But but I think it, it, it's getting very interesting. Excellent. I think I'm a big fan of the sector <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um all right we will um come back to you because i still have more questions to you because we still got to get into metals and some other fun stuff um but i want to hop over to Deerport here for a little bit and i want to kind of talk about geopolitics with everything that is going on right now so first what are your thoughts on the current geopolitical drop back right now we did not still have the ongoing war in ukraine now we have the israel gaza conflict and the subsequent attacks by the Houthis and the Red Sea, uh, with a re- but yet we really haven't seen any reaction from the energy markets. And so I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is all very mispriced. And um, I, I think even today, Libya, like there's so many things going on. Libya, I think what they had the shutdown of an oil field that took about 300,000 barrels a day off the market um, depends how long that's going to last. If I remember uh, that correctly, I saw it this morning on on Thomson Reuters, and um, you had the killing yesterday of of Saleh, uh, what's his last name, Saleh Aruri, who is like the the leader of Hamas, um, and now things are, are deputy leader of Hamas, and now things are are heating up um, with Hezbollah saying now they will start to target uh, Tel Aviv. Um, which, you know, Hezbollah definitely has the capability of doing that just because, I mean, they're supplied directly through the Iranians. Um, And then in the Red Sea, you have the Houthis. So I have no idea um, why the oil market is not taking this as seriously as this is. Um, I do think that this is probably one of the most severe conflicts, um, not if the most severe conflict, like, you know, kind of barring the, the, the... you know, the, the Intifada in the 70s. But, like, you know, kind of minus that, this is probably one of the most serious conflicts that we've had between Israel and Palestine. And now, in the grand scheme of things, all of these other nations within the region that are seemingly taking the side of the Palestinians, as you mentioned, Yemen uh, and what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea, um, the Iranians becoming more and more um, erratical, um, Hezbollah really starting to strengthen in Lebanon, um, I think that all of this is going to make for probably uh, a regional war, not if just continued uh, and um, further escalating conflicts between these guys. And so given you know where the energy markets are, I do think that they are, are massively, massively mispriced. Um, and even something that some other people I, I've noticed haven't really been talking about, it's what's happening in northern Iraq between Turkey and the Kurds. And last time this escalated, there's a pipeline there. Um, and, and the pipeline's called Jehan. Um, it's a it's a pretty significant pipeline. The Turks and the Kurds have gone back and forth over kind of power for that pipeline for a while. Um, I think it was about five years back, the Kurds ended up just like blowing up a part of it. Um, and this massively disrupted the flow of oil uh, to... Um, Southern Europe, I think about 60% of the exports from Jehan go to places like Italy, Eastern Europe, um, and uh, Southern Europe, uh, and that caused um, energy prices to spike um, for the Southern European countries. So even that in and of itself is another 
area in which you could start to see flow through into energy markets that really hasn't been priced in. But looking at the overall geopolitical uh, picture, I, I do think that it's going to be very turbulent. I do think that this should add volatility to oil. Um, but I, I do structurally think going into 2024, oil should be much higher anyways. Um, like, again, I'm, I'm more of a like a commodities tourist. I'm not like a razor or a Thomas. But in, into the second half of, of 2024, I do think that oil should probably be around $90 just because of structural reasons. Um, and that's barring, you know, the geopolitical risk premium that for some reason is not being priced in. But I, I do think that um, oil is significantly mispriced just given the overall geopolitical picture. So do you see this? kind of escalating into like a protracted war and well it, at least in israel gaza you know, do you think this is going to, going to be protracted and um do you see any of the other arab nations getting involved so far everybody wants to stay out of it yeah i i don't know if other arab nations will get involved the problem is um abdelmalek al-houthi uh even essentially sent a, a message to the UAE and the Saudis that like, if you guys um, essentially like try to bypass um, us and continue to try to work on like normalization with Israel, which maybe not, that probably won't be as much of a problem for the Saudis. Um, but the UAE has actually taken tremendous steps of trying to normalize relations with the Israelis. The Houthis said that they would start targeting um, oil fields and refineries, which they do have the capability of doing. Um, so if they don't get involved um, or if they don't take strict kind of measures uh, against like the West and, and the Israelis, whether it be through sanctions or otherwise, um, the Houthis actually might make good on that promise and, and start to target um, the Saudis and, and the UAE. Um, so I, I do think that, yeah, it'll probably mostly be Yemen and then the proxies of Iran and then like some other like Sunni backed like terrorist organizations like Hamas, like Al Qaeda, those kinds of guys who kind of get involved in aspects like this. Um, but like in, in the grand scheme of thing of like, you know, Saudi Arabia or the UAE or the Qataris or like these guys actually directly getting involved uh, with the Palestinians, I think that it's, uh, you know, very unprobable. Um uh, of something like that happening. So I, I just think that it's going to be a long drawn out war, um, between, you know, um, Israel, uh, and, uh, then like kind of these, these Hamas directly. And then the backed proxies within the region in Lebanon and, and Yemen and Syria and, uh, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's, it's probably going to go on much longer than was anticipated. I actually thought after October 7th, uh, and after Israel started carrying out um, operations uh, in Palestine, it was probably going to come to a, a pretty quick end because I thought that that would be like enough for them to be like, okay, guys, like, you know, uh, you you guys can't be doing this. Um, but I, I think Israel's on the right path that the only way of, of really, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm from the Middle East before people are like, oh, this guy hates Palestinians. But um, I think the only way to, to really get this done is is through crushing um, Hamas. Uh, and I think that's the only way that they will have regional peace um, in the Middle East. And I, I know for some people that might not be a popular opinion, but I, I think that um, that's going to be the only way 
um, for peace going forward, because if they don't, um, the problem's going to come back. And I, I think that it will come back with a vengeance. And so, you know, that keeps Israel at risk. So um, I do think that this is going to go on until uh, Hamas is, has pretty much been crushed. And then uh, I want to kind of switch this over to Turkey for a little bit. Um, so Turkey seems to be kind of this growing hub for LNG and that gas, particularly Russia wanting uh hub there to, to make a deal with a big hub there. So do you see any conflicts with NATO over this being that, you know, there's sanctions on and Russia and what does this mean for Turkey? And does Turkey even care what NATO thinks, even though they are a NATO member? Yeah, I mean, they do. But it, like with with Erdogan, it, it always depends on what side of the bed he he wakes up on. Um, so like one day he'll want to be part of you. The, the next day he'll want to be like the leader of like the Islamic world. So it, it, it just... Erdogan is, is kind of a wild card. Um, I, I know that uh, some Turkish companies were sanctioned, as were some UAE companies that were sanctioned uh, for bypassing sanctions with Russia. Um, I'm not sure if they would actually throw Turkey out of NATO. Um, there would probably be a lot of posturing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that Turkey has some capability for the LNG point. And I know that there was like a collaboration between the Azeris who have a lot of LNG, um, at least regionally speaking, uh, and um, Turkey to get a pipeline built um, through the um, through the Azeri state network, who who does like a lot of these projects, and the Turkish government. Obviously, you know they share a lot of commonalities, just you know being that they're both Turkic nations, and so um, there has been a lot of money um, that has been done. Uh, through the Azeris and the Turks to help try to build um, an LNG hub. Um, but right now, even from that standpoint, I would still prefer Azerbaijan over over Turkey. And politically, I think Azerbaijan has a more um, a, a stronger government and a government that takes um, better kind of regional stances on things, for example. Um, and now, like even in that aspect, there's been kind of bifurcations between the Azeris and the Turks uh, because the Azeris have taken a very pro-Israel stance and that's obviously not made Erdogan happy. Um, so even in and of itself, there could be disruptions to things if, if Erdogan continues to, you know, um, make statements about Azerbaijan's support of, of, uh, of Israel, uh, because really Azerbaijan is the one that controls most of the flows, uh, essentially through two pipelines. Uh, or, well, it's three. It's called the Baku-Tbilisi-Jehan um, uh, pipeline, and they call it BTC for short. So all of those flows that go through Baku, up through Georgia, uh, through Turkey, and then down uh, through into Kurdistan are essentially more or less controlled by Azerbaijan. So um, yeah, I, I would still say Azerbaijan is probably the bigger player, um, and Turkey might take some market share, but I don't think that it would take much, at least regionally speaking, because the Azeris still kind of seem to be the large exporters of LNG in that region. I know that they just signed a deal, Baku actually, with Romania to build a pipeline to supply like some uh, other countries in Eastern Europe um, with LNG as well, so... Um, those are uh, those I, I would still, yeah, just still favor probably Azerbaijan uh, over Turkey, at least as an LNG hub. Excellent. And then you posted a chart about Saudi Arabia returning to a budget deficit this year. Um, obviously, plans for 2030 agenda heavily depend on oil prices. So in your opinion, 
Um, what does this do to, I think there's two camps, there's sort of two camps of thoughts on this. One that, you know, this only solidifies cohesion within OPEC, which is the way I lean, but some, some have suggested or think they're going to return to their good old ways and just turn on the tap to push out exports. So just what are your thoughts on how they're going to handle this situation? Yeah, I, 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 uh, I think for a lot of people, no, I'm not a very big believer in OPEC. Uh, I, I mean, I just think um, that cartels never work um, because of the prisoner's dilemma. Um, I mean, that's kind of a, a big point of the whole idea of, 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 of like being in a cartel is that people will essentially cheat on production, um, which I mean, I think even the Saudis did somewhat if we start to look at like their export data. Um, there was a lot more exports of oil than what should have been accounted for given like the, the production cuts. But again, um, you know, that's some of that people might chalk up to speculation, but I think that the Saudis will have to turn on the taps. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem is, you know, there's the whole vision 2030, there's all of this infrastructure spending. Um, there's things that they're trying to do for the PIF. Um, but right now they reported a fiscal uh, deficit. Um, even their nominal GDP contracted uh, 4.4% um, year over year, um, which was actually, I believe, the worst in the GCC. Um, the Qataris grew, I think, about at like 2%. Um, I think the UAE was slightly higher. Oman was around 4 and I think Kuwait was over 6 um, so regionally speaking, Saudi is absolutely bleeding money. I, I would chalk that up to, um, a lot of speculative spending, um, and reckless spending. Um, and despite, you know, the OPEC, um, and production cuts, they haven't been able to get oil, uh, to where they need it. And actually, if you were to look at their break, even that they would need to pay for everything that they have projected for the PIF, they would need oil running at $108 a barrel. Um, so, you know, they are absolutely bleeding, um, you know, money. Um, and so I think that the only way that they can really do that is to turn on the taps and export as much oil as they possibly can to pay for everything that they have planned for, for Vision 2030. And absent that, I just think that most of that production will continue to come from non-OPEC producing nations. Um, and, you know, I think that that's going to make the, uh, the job harder um, for the OPEC states. And I, I mean, I feel like even over time, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of discohesion in OPEC. I mean, you had the Qatar leave. I know people, Angola left, but you know, people say that's not even that big. Uh, you had En Nahian, who's the leader of the UAE, even saying, we don't want to be beholden to the flag of Saudi Arabia, like in, in the sense of OPEC cuts, because all of these nations have different, you know, economic objectives. They all have different fiscal budgets. They all have different you know, infrastructure projects that they want to fund. Um, and so, you know, kind of being at the constraint of one nation that's kind of, a you know, the leader of the helm doesn't make a lot of sense because for some nations they can't do this. And you remember during Ramadan, everybody was saying, oh, these Ramadan cuts that really never materialized. Iraq literally the next day came out and said, we're not going to abide by these cuts because we just spent so much CapEx uh, building out infrastructure that we can't do these cuts. Um, and so like there's, there's always been a lot of discohesion. So um, I think probably into the second half of, of 2024, they'll probably give up on this because they're just going to be bleeding uh, so much money at that point. Um, and they will probably have lost so much market share. And I, I'm sure everybody's seen the graph of how much 
uh, market share Saudi Arabia has lost over the last like, you know, five or six years. So I, I think at some point they're going to have to give up on this and just probably try to produce as much as they can. But again, I, I've never really liked OPEC. I, I'm not a, a big fan of OPEC. I'll, I'll make that very clear. So uh, what I say probably has a lot of, of my own biases in it. But um, yeah. Tracy, if I, if I could add to Deerpoint's point, I just put it up in the nest. Uh, this was, I probably thought was like, you know, I think just on the OPEC side, this was probably the most interesting quantitative study I'd seen out there. Basically, what it looked at was uh, average change in monthly uh, uh, average price of Brent following an OPEC announcement, right? And so blue bars there are cuts, um, orange bars are raises. <laughs> and what, what you find here is, is that it's exactly the opposite, at least in the near term, right? Uh, is that, in fact, when OPEC cuts, uh, the prices tend to go down because of the reason they're cutting, right? And, and for all the all the reasons Deer Point makes as well, you, you know. They, and then and then when they actually uh, when they hike production and I, the price keeps going up, it's kind of it's an interesting thing where you know. And I tweet about aging. I said, you know, what they should have done is actually raise production. <laughs> but 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 it, the bottom line is the numbers speak to a whole industry of OPEC watchers that probably are, if you look at the numbers, pretty irrelevant. I th thank you for chiming in. Um, we're going to, I'll come back to Deer Point. Let's go back to Alex. I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about uh, U.S. demand and exports. Um, seems e EIA has been underestimating demand for a while now. So what are they getting wrong about this? And um, if you want to talk a little bit about exports as well. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so the demand been really intriguing, right? It's been really interesting because uh, there was this kind of narrative around uh, Fed uh, uh, rates and how the burden it will have, let's say, on the U.S. population and consuming products. But we are kind of fluctuating around this 20 million barrel a day of the demand side, and you don't really see any decay to kind of previous trends. In fact, like last week, the total demand in the United States estimates from EIA was uh, about 21.4 million barrels, very strong number from gasoline uh, consumption, around nine. Uh, kerosene, kind of in line with that kind of jet fuel consumption, which the United States doesn't export. The, the, the exports are not increasing as much as gasoline for kerosene and distillates. Uh, those numbers are fairly strong. And so we kind of fluctuate in this range, right? And there's a lot of seasonality associated with that. As I mentioned before, the, the exports are mainly increasing. Uh, United States evolving into this kind of export hub, uh, despite kind of the increasing oil production. Um, and again, the narrative is that we basically went, uh, you know, companies cannot stop producing. Well, and as I mentioned, reality is we just got back to the previous highs, 13.2 uh, million barrels or so, right, um, from four years ago, so pre-COVID. And just kind of to give you like the context of rate of change, and how important the share revolution was in the United States. So from 2010 to 2015, United States grew production by 70%. From 2015 to 2020, United States increased production by 4%. But just pre-COVID peak uh, uh, production to now, the production increase was 3%. So the rate of change in production growth is also changing significantly, right? And we've seen this in other basins. But I would say the demand uh, been fairly, you know, been okay, been strong. But I think there's not enough conversations about the exports and the light and exports where essentially what we're talking about is a giant like hydrocarbon soup that the United States is producing. 
it's importing another soup that's being mixed with that soup. Then the consumer, which is basically United States um, resident, consumes the soup and the light ends, kind of the leftovers are being exported to the rest of the world. And so I think there's like, this huge importance to the role play United States plays. Another thing I wanted to mention is that around the production and uh, what Deer had mentioned, I mean, in, in addition to Iran being part of OPEC there, I think Iran producing 2.5 million barrels a day. I mean, Iran clearly plays an important role when it comes to kind of supporting Hamas and Hezbollah. And with basically Israeli citizens not being in kind of the northern border right now, I think it's roughly 50,000 people like staying in hotels and kind of the midsections in Tel Aviv and Haifa there. And uh, basically people that you 100,000 people that used to live next to the Gaza Strip that now live in hotels in a lot. These people cannot get back to their homes uh, because of the safety concerns. And so there's this northern kind of uh, front that, that opened kind of from Lebanon through Hezbollah, which is funded by Iran. So I find this entire angle, the, the Iranian angle, extremely intriguing. Now, what what's going to happen to those two and a half barrels per day? It's remained to be seen. But I think one thing I would say about kind of the flooding, uh, the opening the tabs from Saudis, I think in, in view in kind of my view and kind of my research, and again, I speak in my personal capacity, uh, there was this really interesting study by Novi Labs. They specialize in machine learning. And they wrote a paper uh, that I read uh, last year in SPE, Society of Petroleum Engineer, addressing kind of the concept of where does the music stop, right, for the Permian Basin? Uh, and what's that kind of inventory quality and degradation looks like? And so in their study, they basically quantified uh, they used NPV-10, they used like I think over $700 uh, per foot in drilling and completion and about 10 bucks like in the transportation cost. But they essentially kind of uh, did a machine uh, learning study to, to provide five different tiers. And then they trans translated those to break evens on, um, on basically the Permian Basin. And so what, what you have here is basically uh, economics that if we had what... Um, what happened in like late uh, 2014, basically uh, 2015, uh, uh, Saudis opened the top and getting pissed off with the United States, increasing production, basically going from, I don't know, seven, seven and a half million barrels a day towards like, uh, uh, like 13 or so. Uh, oil prices back then went to 40 and went to 30. And why am I telling you the story about the acreage and depredation? It's because the economics for the development of those inventories in the permanent basin simply don't work uh, on the cost of supply and the break-evens. So the tier one acreages that Novelabs were able to quantify, out of which by 2021, they saw for tier one, essentially 61% of the drilled sections were assumed based on current production rates. Uh, about two thirds of the tier one production are being basically drilled. And you still have about, I don't know, 250,000 acres of drilled location in tier one those economics work at 45 break even 50 maybe 50 with the current inflation but you probably have like 70 or so percent like 66 percent that are being drilled so you have very little inventory uh, in good quality that's left in tier two uh, based on the study from 2021 you have 53 percent uh, that's been drilled uh, tier 351 uh, tier 337 and tier 538 and tier five economics are break-even costs are $85. And so what does this kind of um, policy looks like with OPEC? Because you essentially choke that growth in the United States, but essentially you hurt yourself. So I don't really see a scenario where 
this could happen. And another thing to consider, I think that's really important is investor sentiment, which is right now is horrible. Uh, capital availability, which is limited because the companies are really trying to compete, you know, the Magnificent Seven, right? And and really attract investment through dividends and buybacks. And uh, you see a lot of M&As basically that, that the capital being allocated to, especially last year, uh, the cost structures are increasing because of the inflation and obviously oil prices not uh, playing along. And so I think it's going to be very challenges, challenging to see, um, you know, if something like this happens from an OPEC policy perspective, to see basically United States growing production. And so you have that catch-22 situation where you may have a balanced market, but essentially everybody would get hurt in this situation. So I think it's really important to look at rate of change of supply that's happening in the United States, which is not what we've seen in the previous decade. And I think uh, OPEC here is really, in, in the way they behave and communicate, it, they sound like more managers of the process, trying basically to kind of address all parties' concerns. And obviously with Angola living, you know, uh, they produce 1.2 million barrels a day. But let's be honest, even if they increase production by um, 10%, right, which, you know, it relies heavily on, uh, you know, oil prices, cost structure, capital availability, and investment sentiment in those fields. I mean, we're looking at an increase of 100,000 barrels per day. So uh, Angola can go and, and do this thing. And then what's going to be really intriguing is that we're going to have Brazil joining OPEC. So what does that mean in overall growth? But I think it's important not taking uh, the permanent for granted and really kind of looking historically that those asset, uh, assets do become essentially gas assets, just like uh, or gasier assets, higher GOR assets, um, similarly to what we saw basically with uh, um, the Bakken and the Eagle Ford historically. And, you know, you can clearly see a kind of Eagle Ford peaking. You see a decline, a lot of optimization going on, trying to do more with less. And again, uh, slight uplift in production and then uh, again decline. And the question for the permian is not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen and at which rate. And I think it's really kind of, you know, for people that listening, it's not something that just happens in a day or a week or a month. Those processes, they're multi kind of decade processes that take time to evolve. And I think maybe OPEC is kind of seeing through this and trying maybe to balance the market. And I think historically they've been saying that they try and incentivize investment. Uh, to the sector to maybe grow the production of the future. But through that volatility, the last thing that's probably happening is that companies have more incentive to drill, especially where, you know, the tier three, the tier four, the tier five acreages, at least in the Permian, uh, you know, break even like at 70, 75 and $85 WTI. And so that was, you know, I know a lot of people have been scratching their heads because we've had, you know, a, the Duckwell inventory has drained significantly over, you know, the last, after 2020. Um, and then we've also had rig counts kind of continue to decline. So, um, but yet we keep seeing U.S. ramp up production. So is this all due to just technical advancements? And does this catch up to production at some point? Yeah, so so I do this for a living and, you know, there's, of course, these companies, you know, there's a lot of incentive to do more with less, right? And, of course, to optimize, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on reservoir simulations, trying to kind of um, have maybe like tighter spacings, uh, going into maybe like uh, different layers of deformation. Like if we're talking about uh, the Midland Basin, the, you know, the kind of the Wolf Camp A and, and Wolf Camp B, the lower strawberry kind of sections, can you put more more wells and frag those? But I think it's also really important to keep it in the context of capital expenditures, right? 
the companies uh, that commit kind of free cash flow to investors in, in, in the form of dividends and buybacks, and maybe some of that growth that comes through those optimizations. So you will see kind of attempts to, to really cut on cost and capture those prices. But we've seen, for example, with Chevron, like going into 2022, when Russia attacked Ukraine in February 2022, they were kind of under, under investing in the CapEx. And then the CapEx started kind of increasing and then they made an acquisition. So there's a lot of kind of lagging kind of behaviors where you see the price, you're trying to budget September, October, you have like a capital expenditure program for next year, but then you get hit with those price fluctuations that, you know, go from like 85 to 70. And so the, you know, the netbacks are not maybe as good. And so there is this adjustment. So there is always this kind of iterative process trying to, to get better. But guess what? In some point you will have to drill and the tier one acreages are not, you know, are not getting better, right? I mean, uh, we're, we're talking to if uh, in 2021, the basically inventory quality that's been drilled at tier one, which is like the lower kind of break-even prices, uh, mainly kind of on the east side of the Midland Basin, right? Uh, um, sorry, ma- mainly on the west side of the Midland Basin, those those will be like the break-evens will be like the $50. And now you have to go into acreages maybe that are not as economic. So you kind of, you know, you, you take that risk and especially for the little guys, it's become more more challenging. Also, don't forget that, I, and that was our reality. There was a time, um, you know, in the 2020, I think it was like end of 2021, when President Biden went on TV and was begging oil companies not to buy back shares and not like increase dividends and drill production. And so I think we've seen some kind of also sentiment associated with like that incentives. But of course, you know, a lot of companies, again, so production um, increasing, but oil, oil prices declining. So we're almost kind of going back to the previous decade kind of environment. Uh, and at which point you kind of stop hurting yourself if you're like a private call, you know, and um, and maybe you kind of just give up and don't increase production. And many of them really try to increase production, boost production, maybe to get acquired. So I think it's really important to kind of keep in mind it's a very dynamic industry, lots of things going on, uh, quality changes, but also the quality and the degradation of the equities changes. And I would really, if you want to learn more about this, I would highly encourage you just to Google um, EIA uh, drilling report on uh, Eagle Ford and uh, the Bakken just to see what happened in the, for assets that did peak in the past. There is a lot of optimization, but over time it just declines and just gets a little bit more gashier. So uh, a lot of interesting dynamics, but I, I'm of the view that because the economics don't work for, for those tiers to, to be developed, uh, or you see basically plateauing in production, but if oil prices are a little bit higher, maybe you see growth. Um, and then, um, and then maybe OPEC kind of seeing through that and doesn't get have to get as aggressive. Remember, we we'll have to talk about things on on the kind of extreme uh, levels of the spectrum. It has to be extreme or really good or really bad. But sometimes it could be in the middle as well, right? It doesn't have to be extreme. So maybe they're just trying to manage this process to kind of see through it and see basically the Permian kind of maybe trying to plateau here as the oil prices and the sentiment they just fairly horrible and uh, very uneconomic for for some of the swells for sure excellent thank you and then back to thomas i want to talk about um let's talk about renewables specifically renewable metals obviously you know they've had a terrible year uh, in 2023 nickel and uranium particularly 
been rough on price, um, as well as some other metals. So what is this sector looking like to you moving forward? Why do you think that we they had such a bad year last year? Um, and, and what metals are you looking in at specifically? Yeah, so, yeah, the, uh, so on the battery metal side, it, it, it tail of three tapes, if you will, right? Uh, the copper, which we're structurally the most bullish on it, that's copper finished the year flat. Equities, um, a mixed bag around that. And typically, uh, typically in a year where commodities are weak, um, and, uh, you know, and one commodity ends up flat, what, what you end up seeing is a massacre among the small caps, right, and small and small mids. And, uh, that's kind of what's happening in the copper land. And we think uh, not, like, you know, obviously there's smaller names has been hurt, but I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities in, in, in copper specifically. So that would be like the top of our list. We like copper. And, and we think that that, when it comes to electric electrification and, and just just in, in the general trend towards um, uh, uh, being more um, beholden to uh, it, like the, these types of uh, like penetration trends, which EVs and we can argue about like you know w- w- what level. I think I think uh, some broader uh, estimates, uh, at least from um, you know leading uh, EV leading organizations, I think are incorrect. But I think there's no question you're going to continue to see penetration. The real bottleneck is that you know we've been big believers that if if you have exposure in commodities, uh, you know we're we're across the entire spectrum from uranium to natural gas to oil, uh, and including all battery metals. We think that in the EV chain, at least, all of the hype is really downstream on the EV vehicles, particularly Tesla. If you look at valuations um, and all the other uh, other EV manufacturers, we think this is, you know the, their the, their valuations make no sense. But where the real bottleneck will exist is at you know is is on the mining side right like it's it's really the uh, the commodities that go into these batteries uh you know that, that ultimately uh have uh, you know will will experience uh, the larger uh co- composite of return on inve- uh, return on investment in the entire chain right they, they will they will own uh the economic value now last year so so gone through copper that's one and then two lithium uh and i think there's no question things got frothy and lithium um and uh that you know we saw we saw lithium check back significantly but i think that's that's an interesting opportunity i think the the net of of where our our views and we we so we'd lightened up our position last year at the start of the year in lithium um and that was uh you know we we really redeployed that into technology and that that, you know that worked but then at in december we re-upped our position uh, in uh, two of the larger lithium names, we think really interesting opportunity. In lithium, you don't really have to necessarily go that far down market cap. Uh, I think that's you know uh, I, I don't think you need to do that. Uh, you can own the large ca- uh, large cap names. You know they they are uh, Al Merrill, SQM. Both those names are down, were down thirty plus percent last year. I think you can own those names. But also, I think there's some other interesting, unique opportunities. Like, not to say like you know th- there's definitely some interesting names. That in the uh, in the small cap space uh, that uh, that you know baby in the bathwater type stuff. So, but people stock selection in lithium is going to be very important. Um, I think you've bottomed out in lithium price, and so you, you don't have to get back to all time highs. Or, you know, I don't think you need to get back to the pricing uh, pricing uh, peak of, of uh, you know a couple of years ago. I think what you you really have some interesting opportunities in 
small mid that uh you know that uh that that in, that investors are like you know what at these low prices all these projects don't work i think there are absolute projects that work uh and uh and you know the most interesting part uh, of this uh th that i'd say tracy is that w when you look at rio tinto um when you look at php look at go to their slide decks go see what what commodities they have and what they're missing they're missing lithium, Tracy. <laughs> like truly, they're missing lithium, and that's kind of interesting, right? And if if not now, then when, right? If they're not going to make M and A now, then when? Like, so I think it, there could be some interesting M and A that happens in the space that kind of reignites these small caps. And then uh, lastly, nickel. Again, I would say it's kind of a, a similar situation to lithium. Uh, but but you do have Indonesia producing nickel, and so that, that absolutely is. Uh, it, you know, there's a there's, there's the supply side of that. Um, but we're a big believer. Um, we own a company called Canada Nickel, and and uh, Agnico Eagle, uh, which is one of the largest gold mining companies uh, in the world, just took a 12 uh, percent position uh, just prior to the new year uh, in 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 Canada Nickel. And I'll just tell you kind of the back thesis on on. The Canadian side of the nickel now they're they're you know they're not in production you know they, they will be in come five years time but the 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 view here is that um, that EV manufacturers are going to go far more uh, like it's going to be far more of uh, the supply chain is going to be integrated locally right and that the view there is that a listen you know you have to incentivize if these are truly critical metals as everyone says they are and they're important metals uh, then. Then you know why the heck are you not incentivizing production you know, within the country? And so the view is is that you get uh, you know and this is that, that you have uh, uh, EVs that are sold in the country um, or manufactured in the country. The, the the point is that you have them you have them uh, integrate all the way back to the the original source and uh, and we think that nickel uh, particularly it's it basically it's the major uh, it's the major component. Of of the most dominant battery chemistries, uh, nickel is so it's not going away. And the reason why nickel is important versus other uh, you know versus other metals is that nickel, when in combination with uh, lithium, is what gives you the range, right? And and I think that's you know that'll continue to be a feature, right, of uh, of the EV market. And so our view is that uh, nickel again is interesting, and I think you know uh, there's names out there. Uh, and I think the, the the group of names is much smaller than lithium, but again, I think it's a similar banged out situation uh, to um, to lithium. But it's a it's a it's a it's a commodity where you're going to see the supply chain really drive the demand. So you're talking about long term taker pay agreements uh, with companies. You're seeing Agnico come in, uh, and that in, includes also Anglo American, which is another large global miner that also has a position. Uh, it's a 10 percent position. In Canada, nickel. So, for, so from my perspective, you know what what we're seeing in in probably one of the you know the top tier Canadian nickel names, uh, North American nickel names in Canada, nickel. You're gonna you should see that uh, continue to play out in lithium names, uh, in, in particularly the large large mining companies that just don't have positions in lithium. Excellent. Thank you. And then um, Deerpoint, uh, this will be Deerpoint's last question, and then the, we'll do the final round, which is your final thoughts round. So um, back to Deerpoint. I just want your thoughts on, I don't know if you had any specific thoughts on Venezuela and Guyana 
And if we would see escalation or not, I mean, this is a 120-year dispute, and it's not the first time Venezuela has attempted to block or impede oil production. The last time was in 2018. So, you know, should we be taking this seriously or or not? And, you know, what would be in it for Venezuela in the end, actually? Yeah, on, on Venezuela and Guyana, I, I actually am not sure. Um, like geopolitically, usually it's just mostly the Middle East that I, I focus on just because I, I have family there. It's a little easier um, for the, the Venezuela-Guyana thing, uh, to be to be quite frank. I have no idea how that ends up playing out. Well, that's all good. All right. So then move it. Well, I'll do a, another question another way. What other hot spots should we be watching as far as the Middle East is concerned or uh, or any other place prone to conflict that you are specifically keeping your eye on? I'm, I've been watching Iran, and I'm, I'm not sure if anybody knows this. Uh, today, uh, there was actually was, was the, the anniversary, I guess, of, of the death of Soleimani in Iran. Um, and there was actually two suitcase bombs that went off and killed about 107 uh, people uh, that were there. Um, and so now the question is, who, who did that? Because obviously a lot of people at that anniversary were high-ranking government officials uh, in Iran. Um, and so, you know, now all the speculations coming out, was this the Israelis? Um, was this the Americans? Uh, da, 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 da. So, I mean, that's, that's probably something to, to watch going forward because, you know, on the back of the killing of, of Saul yesterday um, in, in Lebanon and then on the back of this today, um, the regime in Iran uh, probably is not going to be happy. And so I, I do think that there is going to become increasingly... Um, uh, like the the probability of of Iran reacting uh, even more irrational than they already do is is rising very rapidly, and I, I do think at some point um, the probability of them closing the Strait of Hormuz is probably not entirely off the table. Uh, but I, I just think that I, I mean I know that they kind of posture at this um, like usually once a year, but just given the whole backdrop of things, I actually think that that is something that uh, the Iranians might do. And I mean, you know, is Iran really a new place to watch? No, but I, I do think that um, their overall threats, uh, just given the backdrop of everything that's happening, um, is probably going to become more and more um, erratic. Um, and so I probably think that that's the next thing to watch because usually when they get involved, Iran gets involved. It's like indirectly through proxies like Hezbollah, like the Houthis. Um, but now I think they might start to become more directly involved just outright. Um, and obviously that means uh, that that could be um, a, a much more severe scenario than just having to you know deal with the Houthis. Or, or, you know, Hezbollah and Lebanon, I, I think if the IRGC actually gets directly involved, um, that will sp spill over into kind of a much more um, dire regional conflict. Do you think the U.S. would ever actually get involved in, in a hot war with Iran, meaning not via proxy? I don't think so. I, I think, again, that would be through proxies. And I've, I've actually been watching... Um, military plane data that's going from Baku to, to Israel because um, Israel is actually Azerbaijan's largest weapon supply. 
Azerbaijan kind of guy in the region. And so I, I think that it would be through guys like that. Uh, it would be through guys like like the Azeris and the Israelis. Well, you're cutting out a little bit. Probably. Oh, yeah, probably co-working. I am getting a phone call. So I, I think that that's set it up. Probably Israel and, and Azerbaijan doing things just regionally. Thank you. All right. And so the final round, I know we've gone over the hour, but I really do appreciate your time, you guys. So the final round is the same question. It's, you know, you can talk about something that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you wanted to talk about and or, you know, what should we really be focusing on in this industry over, say, the next 12 to 24 months? And we'll start with Alex. Yeah, one, one thing uh, I wanted to mention is the importance uh, of not just looking at oil prices and, and the upside, it's also looking at, at kind of the break humans and the cost of supply. Uh, this is something that I've been very passionate about in communicating. Some of those uh, companies um, have very low cost of supply of uh, in the 30s and with the sustaining capital um, maybe in the 40s. Uh, WTI, right? So I think it's really important to, for me personally, to invest in companies that are not on a treadmill, that uh, don't have um, kind of high decaying type curves where if the production drops, you always have to drill and kind of keep keep layering on. And so I find a lot of opportunity in the Canadian uh, oil sense thermal plays where you really have low cost of supply, you have very predictable geology, uh, you kind of, it's almost like the manufacturer at this point. And the one big thing that kind of works against those businesses is the initial capital investment on the facilities because you need to generate steam uh, at the back when you steam condenses. You, you essentially kind of dis uh, dissolve or reduce the viscosity and uh, the oil drains by gravity. And, and you need to treat it at the back with high water cuts, remove the, the water, recycle it, re-inject. And so those uh, initial capital expenditures were significant. And those companies are holding those very valuable assets that they don't have to spend money on when it, um, when it comes to CapEx and essentially kind of maintain the OPEX. And so when it comes to the free cash flow calculation, if you look kind of the adjusted fund flow or, or the cash flow, whatever you use and that sustaining capital, uh, many of those companies even today uh, are able to, to provide, you know, pay dividends, uh, cover the dividends at those prices, uh, do a lot of buybacks. Uh, have uh, a little bit of a growth. Um, and another thing I would encourage uh, people to kind of think about is that uh, most majors that I'm aware of uh, committed to 2030 and 2050 emission reduction goals. So this is something that's really important to keep an eye on because that capital is also being spent on, just like you see optimizations in the Permian, a lot of this capital is going through those new, new projects, new initiatives uh, to meet goals to reduce the energy intensity per barrel, but also uh, absolute energy intensity uh, to basically limit CO2 uh, output to the atmosphere. And so this is another capital that could uh, constrain basically future growth because that's another dollar that doesn't go through production, but it goes into that mission of cutting um, emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2050, which is a very ambitious uh, plan. Um, and the other thing, you know, I, I really wanted to share is that I think it's really important, uh, you know, to zoom out sometimes, not just to look at like the weekly recounts. And I mean, those rigs could be like drilling uh, or the existing wells and uh, they can be like, uh, you know, maybe a well that failed, maybe they're doing a side truck or a step out. So it doesn't necessarily mean 
those rigs are deployed to, to drill for new oil and just, you know, go bananas. It, it just, one needs to kind of zoom out and look uh, holistically at, at the decline curves and how those asset, assets kind of become gasier over time, which provides an opportunity to invest in crudes that are a little bit heavier. And again, a lot of the crudes, the lighter crudes with gasoline were okay because that's the octane molecule, that's the C8s. But what happens to jet fuel that ranges in C9 to C16? What happens to kerosene uh, that ranges to in C12 to C15? We don't really have an alternative. It's not like we can put a battery on an aircraft and fly overseas. Uh, and also the heavier products like uh, asphalts um, that uh, basically extract, you know, utilize bitumen, like the heaviest uh, uh, oils to for those applications. And I'll leave you with the final thought. Let's say EV, even if they take over kind of the gasoline industry, uh, this is an one hydrocarbon molecule on the hydrocarbon chain, right? But you need all other things. You need the heavier ends, you need the kerosene, you need the kind of jet fuel, you need the plastics, the thing, the phone you hold right now in your hand, everything around you is made of the plastic. And so the question is, what happens to that molecule that maybe you don't need as much anymore? And I can tell you the price for that molecule will decline and therefore it will compete with other uh, initiatives such as EV or hydrogen vehicles or hybrid vehicles, whatever it is, right? So I think it's really important also kind of to zoom out and look holistically what the economics look like in a in a scenario where something displaces something, but you yet you still need another product on the hydrocarbon chain, just like methane, LNG, right, uh, to be utilized. Because when you produce one, you cannot just partition the octanes outside of the hydrocarbon chain. You produce all of it, and now you have to deal with it. So uh, thanks again, Tracy, for the opportunity to talk to you today and really enjoying uh, the speaker panel with uh, dear Thomas. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Thomas, same question. Uh, talk about something that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to and or what should we really be focusing on as investors over the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, so, so uh, you know, yeah, yeah, great panel and, and uh, yeah, great, great to hear. Uh, Razor and Deer Points uh, views. And, uh, Razor makes great point. You know, byproducts are, are uh, you, when you produce something and you, you get something else out. You know, the, you know that's always uh, unintended consequences, and you always got to think through that in, in the market. But um, one thing with respect to uh, weeks, if I can talk weeks. Uh, so we we hosted uh, you know our series of conferences. Uh, uh, you know, go and um, uh, one of them was uh, hard money, and we're big, we're big hard money uh, uh, believers. Uh, so that's across the chain. Uh, we're we're hard commodities. <laughs> put it put it another way, right? We're a big believer uh, that uh, that uh, you know things you, you th things like gold, silver, um, and uh, and and the slew of commodities we talked to so far are are very important to society, and, and they're and they're being undervalued, and, and especially in a in a place where uh, the Fed prints money, central banks print money, right? And so well, uh, and uh, we. We include Bitcoin in that as well. And I know, uh, you know, there are many in the commodity world that, you know, don't recognize Bitcoin. We're a believer that that it is part of that construct. Now, it's a, it's part of a, a finite, uh, a finite, uh, you know, uh, finite, uh, finite uh, digital uh, asset that uh, that get, that uh, can't be uh, deflated away, right? And so, from our perspective, what gets super interesting and probably the biggest trend in the next uh, week and a half, two weeks is is uh, this um, uh, is the SEC. Uh, about to approve uh, Bitcoin ETFs, and 
the largest players are involved here, and I'll just kind of tell my thesis in a, uh, a couple of minutes here. And you know, but the big picture here is that this is it, it looks all signs look to a ninety percent plus uh, a probability of this being approved, and uh, really the the concept here is why the SEC would take you know go through this length, why uh, companies like Fidelity, uh, BlackRock, etc., why you know why why they would uh, all spend so much of their time, resources. If this wasn't a philosophically, if the SEC wasn't philosophically okay with this, they would have kiboshed this, you know, uh, a long time ago in terms of, like, no conversations. and you no. Know, but we're at that final point where we call it, like, the operational mechanical phase of, uh, of uh, you know, basically, you know, is it going to be a cash redeem or, you know, what are the final nuances of what these ETFs are going to look like? Now, the SEC is set to approve this uh, sometime between uh, January 8th and January 10th. Maybe, maybe those goalposts change of it but what doesn't change is that it assuming that this goes through and there's a 90 percent probability that it does uh what ends up happening is you'll end up seeing a lot of institutional asset flow and uh there's a there's a company uh, uh coin shares that does a phenomenal job aggregating together uh institutional asset flow into uh bitcoin product and if you look at the last rally basically uh what we saw was one eleven point seven billion dollars of instit- money going to in these institutional products? Uh, the, so that includes Canadian Bitcoin ETFs, etc. Um, over a two-year period, and that basically drove um, that basically drove Bitcoin up a hundred eight hundred twenty percent. Uh, in that period to the 68,000 peak level, right? And so that, you know, that that's part of, you know, what drove that. Now, what's interesting in Bitcoin is you have this aspect of these whales, right? Large holders that just don't let go. And very, you know, again, we talked about the squeezes that happened in particular commodities, uranium. This is another similar one where uh, when a large amount of money comes in, in uh, institutional money comes in, they just can't find the Bitcoin, and what you end up happening, and because these whales aren't letting go, uh, and you know, think uh, like, and this everyone from Michael Saylor, Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy, uh, the twins, etc. But what what ends up happening is you get a big spike in volume, uh, in in traded volume in in um, in Bitcoin, uh, and then it. Uh, in line with that, you get spikes in the price of Bitcoin as well. So that you know, that's a little bit of the backdrop there, but then. If think about a big picture here is how much so the real end the nut question is if 11 billion uh, 11.7 billion dollars drove that last 800% spike in bitcoin you know uh, how much money are we expecting into the bitcoin uh, ETF uh, suite of complexes uh, you know suite of uh, of these ETFs how much can we expect our particular view is that you're going to get something north of 50 billion uh, in the first year. And the reason being is that if you look at the Canadian, uh, so in Canada, we have a uh, Bitcoin ETFs that are freely traded. Uh, the largest, uh, the largest Bitcoin ETF, uh, it's run by uh, Purpose Capital. They got 60, uh, over 65% of their assets came in year one. And we think a similar sort of experience uh, happens in America. And the net of it is if you look at penetration of Canadian um, of Canadian Bitcoin ETFs as a part of total assets, that would be the equivalent of 75 billion 
um, in uh, in in assets in uh, or seventy nine billion. Sorry, uh, in assets in America. Like that's your kind of net number if you were to say this is going to be kind of like the Canadian market. But we think a bulk of that comes in the first year. So our view is that that the market right now is estimating ten billion comes in the first year. And again, if even if you assume, and that's kind of Bloomberg's number and also Galaxy Digital's number. Galaxy says there's something like it's something like fourteen billion. Two billion of that money's come in already in 2023, so you can even minus that. You're looking at 10 billion is consensus, and market always kind of works on consensus. Like if 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 it comes below that, maybe the Bitcoin price stays where it is, maybe it go, goes down. Who knows? But the bottom line is 10 billion dollars to 50 billion dollars in the first year is enough to squeeze this thing. Um, and we think the best way to play that is through uh, a slew of Bitcoin levered equities. Uh, that have leverage to the Bitcoin price. Now, what's interesting here is, again, um, the companies that got bid up in 2023 um, and are trading at extreme valuations are you know, large names that every everyone kind of knows, Coinbase and uh, Marathon Digital. Basically, we believe there's a, a secondary tier with lower market cap that trade on like a fraction of the multiple. So half the multiple, uh, they actually have a third of their, uh, a quarter of their balance sheet is in Bitcoin. Um, it actually get, it kind of gets very interesting. And all of the, you know, the catalyst is coming in the, in the next one to two weeks. So and that, that's my alternate trade as well. Excellent. Thank you. And dear point, last but not least, your final thoughts. You can talk about something that, we didn't get a chance to talk about and or, you know, what should we really be paying particular attention to over the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, I mean, probably for everybody in this room, it, it's not going to be anything surprising. But um, I, I know that, you know, in 2023, the environment uh, for oil, I think, had a lot of people kind of surprised given the overall dynamics. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who thought oil would be much higher um, due to kind of different reasons. But going into this year, um, I do expect in the first half for oil to probably be around, you know, $80 uh, more or less. And that's, again, barring kind of the geopolitical risk spikes that you might see um, here and there. Um, but kind of in the grand scheme of things, I do think that oil going into the second half, um, you know, given overall economic growth, world economic growth being more resilient than I think a lot of people were were expecting. I kind of expect crude demand uh, to strengthen into the second half of 2024. Probably should see oil somewhere around $90 a barrel. And also in the second half of, of 2024, I do think that stock draws will outweigh any builds that would get in the first half. Um, so the oil market should probably remain relatively tight second half of 2024 into 2025. But I know most people in here are like oil and gas people. So this probably isn't a big surprise. Uh, but um, I do think that this year oil is going to be much stronger than it was in 2023. Excellent. And with that, thank you, gentlemen, for your time today. Really appreciate it. I know our guests really appreciate it. And um, follow these guys on Twitter. And uh, of course, um, and I guess with that, thanks for attending, everybody. Thank you for your time, gentlemen, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Razor and Thomas.